God, we come and, uh, and I want to pray for the people gathered here today. I want to thank you for bringing them in, 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 into these doors today. And whatever you're doing in their lives, whatever questions are coming to mind, God, uh, give them the courage to ask. Truly, God, no matter how big or small the question might be, Lord, I pray for wisdom. Um, give me insight to answer these as, 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 as honestly as possible and as in accord with your truth. So guide us today, be here today, be present today. Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, they're, uh, they're starting to roll in, so let me start hitting them. Question number one. <clears throat> sometimes I will start to pray, and I sometimes don't know if I am doing it right, because I will just start to work things out in my head. I start to think that this is God's way of helping me through this particular time. Could this be? Absolutely. Because prayer is not about a magic formula. Prayer is not about this stilted formal thing. Prayer is conversation. Have you ever had a conversation with someone else and sometimes you're midstream asking the question and the very answer to your question comes to mind? Why would that be any different with God, right? So don't feel bad about that. Don't feel that that's wrong in some kind of way. God will guide it. Just remember that prayer is conversation. Keep the conversation going, which doesn't mean always talking either. Listen as well. Um, And sometimes you ask a question, right? Sometimes you ask a question and you go, hey, where do you want to go for lunch today? Okay? Sometimes there's kind of an answer coming back immediately, right? Sometimes when we tell people to listen for God, they think they got to do this. God, what do I do? You know, just, just, just talk to God like a conversation. He will speak in his time and through his word and leave it at that, and you're going to be just fine. Great question. All right, next one. Here we go. <clears throat> Actually asked again, so let me hit it again. What do I do if I believe I should no longer be at my old church? but feel trapped there due to ties and have long been praying for the okay, but have been getting no clear answer. Um, what, what do I do? You, you know, if you're here again at this service and had asked it earlier, um, let me just kind of address it again. And uh, that's tough. And, and, and what you're feeling right now, that, that, that tearing between the church you want to be in and the church you feel attached to, a lot of us have been there, and I get it. You know, the way I answered this earlier, I want to answer again right now. Your soul is too important to languish in a place that is not connecting with you personally because of exterior factors that you're afraid of. Your relationship with God is more important than the fear of family ties what family might think, and all these other kinds of things going on in your life. I say that if you're, you're at another church and you're looking to come to FOF. I say that to you if you're at FOF and you're looking to move on to another church. We don't see other churches as the enemy. We're all in this together. And you know what the reality is? There's no such thing as one church for all people. Different people are going to connect in different kinds of churches. And that's true not just for a person, but even for points and times in their life. So I want to encourage you, act on that. Don't let something as exterior as that hold you back from the place where God is going to churn and swell and flow in your life. Now, on the other hand, 
if you're running from something, wanting to avoid dealing with something, afraid because it's getting too intimate or personal in a place and you want to stay anonymous, those are another set of issues and questions that I've got to really encourage you to fight the hard fight, to do the right thing, and to process them correctly and not run from them. I know so many people that run from church to church every six months. They come to the new church, it feels great for like six weeks, and the newness wears off. And suddenly it starts getting real. It starts getting personal. And they go hopping to the next one and the next one. I tell you, you're going to be hopping your entire life. So hopefully that helps you um, around again and anyone else who's possibly asked as well. Um, Next question. Okay, whoa, big one. Is it wrong to never have children if you're married and able? Great question. And it actually, you know, it touches on birth control, choice to have questions at all, um, no matter what. You know, it, it's, it's fascinating that the very first command of the Bible, do you know what it is? Be fruitful and multiply. And if you're in a Judaic circle... They take that very seriously. It actually even informs how they approach life issues and things of that nature. But you know, when I read the Bible, I see that there tends to be a silence on this topic. And where there's a silence, I don't think we have the right to kind of put in a thus saith the Lord or to take it away. God may bless you with children. You may choose to want to pursue the blessing of children. Children may happen to you. All of those are realities. At the other hand, if you choose to, uh, to not have as many kids as humanly possible, if you choose not to go that way, do I think that's a sin? No, I don't. No, I don't at all. So hopefully that helps you out. Um, okay, what is the difference between the LCMS and the ELCA? Let me unpack the acronyms. LCMS is the church fellowship we belong to, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. ELCA is an acronym for the largest Lutheran body in America. It stands for Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. You know, the biggest thing I've got to encourage you with denominations is to never judge churches by their cover. Okay? Um, What I'm about to do is describe denominationally the difference between these two bodies, which may or may not apply to every single local congregation. Are you with me? Okay. So, even though they both share the name Lutheran, ELCA and LCMS are actually miles and eons apart in approach. Sociologists consider the LCMS to be an evangelical congregation, an evangelical church body. Sociologists consider the ELCA to be a mainline liberal Protestant church body. And it comes down to this specific question right here. What do you think the Bible is? Do you think the Bible contains the word of God? Or do you think the Bible is the word of God? Now, if you hear that quickly, you're going to miss it. But wrestle it out just a little bit in your brain. One says it contains the word of God. One says it is the word of God. What's the difference? Play it out. What's the difference? If it contains the word of God, does it assume it all is the word of God? And the ELC approach to scripture is to say, the word of God is in there, but you got to kind of like root it out. You got to kind of like 
Wrestle it out. It's a nugget. And there's a lot of other stuff in Scripture that, 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 that's simply just, you know, culture of the day. It's fallible. It's not necessarily applicable. Where the LCMS approach to the Word of God is that, no, in its entirety, this is God's message and binding truth on us. And that will lead you to dozens upon dozens upon dozens of implications on, on views of morality, on views of right and wrong, on views of salvation, on views of doctrine, and so forth. In other words, it becomes a question, is it rooted in the Bible as the absolute authority, or is it rooted in the Bible and other interpretations that come in as we seek to judge what the Word of God might be? That's what's happening at the fundamental level. And questions of like, do you wear robes or don't you wear robes, is just kind of like utterly immaterial to that foundational thing. It's for this reason that things happen like this. The LCMS takes a stand. Um, to follow up on the next question about homosexuality, that homosexuality is a sin uh, because areas of the Bible will call it a sin. Where the ELCA will say, no, we don't think it necessarily is a sin because those passages of the Bible are just culturally conditioned and can be um, removed if we don't think they're true anymore. Do you see the difference in how this game works? There you go. Hopefully that was a, a bit helpful. Again, don't judge a local congregation or a Christian by their denominational cover. Just because that is a denominational stance doesn't mean that is per se the belief of a local church or a local person. Does it make sense? All right, cool. Where does the church stand on women who choose to have children outside of wedlock? And then the follow-up question is like through IVF or other means. Well, let's just kind of approach this in a few different ways. Um, I believe that the Bible teaches that sex is something that is to be done in marriage. So at certain very natural levels, having children outside of marriage, if it involves sex, would be sinful. It's supposed to be done in marriage. But getting beyond that with in vitro fertilization and other things, it gets more gray. It gets a lot more gray. If you're not married, can you adopt someone? If you're not married, is it okay to have a child? Again, I don't see the Bible speaking on this one directly. And so the question is to check your motives, to approach it in a God-honoring way, and I think there's a lot of flexibility within that realm. Great one. Next question. If other religions believe in their gods as much as we do ours, then how do we know Christianity is the right religion? followed up by what is the difference between Christianity and other religions? Okay, let's do these in part. First question first. Um, What makes something right is not how much someone believes in it. What makes us right or wrong or them right or wrong is not that they have more people who believe all the harder and somehow the power of our belief conjures it into truth. That is not why we believe that we're right. It's not a majority rules thing or anything else. So I just want to kind of encourage you in that to find the basis for your faith in something deeper that who really, really believes as opposed to reading it and going, when I look at life, universe, the reality, myself, my inner condition, the trustworthiness of the records, the historicity of what happened and everything else, what do I believe is true? And I personally, when I do that, see Christianity and see Christianity 
blazing forth in a way that seems to scream truth. What is the difference between Christianity and other religions? At one level, that seems really tough to answer, doesn't it? Because what religions? There is actually a simple way to answer this where you can group all religions and Christianity. C.S. Lewis was once asked this question. What makes Christianity different than any of these other ones out there? And as the story goes, there was this group of theologians gathering, and they were going, well, maybe it's resurrection. But they're like, no, no, we see resurrection themes in this religion. Maybe it's, maybe it's sacrificial death. No, we see that over here. And he came forward, and he walked, and he goes, that's easy. Do you know what it is? Grace. Every religion in the world revolves around one central concept. How do I get to God? How do I get to God or the great oneness or nirvana or you know, whatever formulation you give to that goal, it's all about us doing something to get there. What makes Christianity so unique in all world religions is that it is the only religion about God doing all the work to come here. Freely given, no ifs, ands, or buts, no strings attached, God taking the initiative for you as opposed to the result. Which might speak oddly to some of you right now who think, a lot like my dad thought, that Christianity was all about the right rules, living the right kind of life, doing the right kind of thing. Is that the essence of Christianity for you? If so, may I challenge you on the basis that you might not know what Christianity really is? Great question. Next one. Okay. A girl at my school has lied to my face for months, and I indirectly found the truth, uh, found out the truth a week ago. She's sad about it and is hurting herself for attention. Do I help her? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. The foundation of the Christian ethic is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when certain religious leaders came to Jesus to challenge him on who a neighbor actually was, he began to paint a picture of the worst kind of person imaginable. They were called Samaritans in those days. And how the Samaritan came into a situation to help someone who despised him, who hated him, who rejected him, and he treated him with love. So yes, you are to help them. However, the help that you can give might go and probably does go far beyond your capacity to help. You are not their savior. It is not up to you and you alone to do it. The help given them doesn't mean you have to be their best friend. The help to give them doesn't mean you have to tolerate wrong. The help to give them doesn't mean you have to insert yourself in a toxic situation. But to get help for them, to point them in the right direction, to pray for them, Jesus tells us to do that for our enemies, doesn't he? Come talk to me about that one. It'll get more nuanced. And, and we'll go from there. Fantastic question. Next one. Do you think infant baptism is right? And then why? Yes, I do think it is right. And, and we practice infant baptism here at FOF. Um, and here is the reason why. 
Baptism is one of these topics that, that Bible-believing Christians fall into two different camps on. And let me describe it briefly, because none of this comes down to like a proof text or anything like that on either side, no matter what they tell you, all right? Uh, it comes down to this. What do you think baptism does, and what do you think it's about? Now, there's some Christians that say baptism is a symbol, all right? It's meant to be like a symbol that stands for a certain reality. It shows something. So let me give you a couple of examples. It's like getting a tattoo with your girlfriend's name on it and a big old heart, really classy, right? You get scroll work going on, and it says, you know, I love Cindy or something like that there, all right? Okay, now... Let's say you meet this Cindy, you never ask her out, you have no relationship with her whatsoever, but you go, I like Cindy. I want Cindy to like me. So you go and get the tattoo that says, heart, I love Cindy. And then can you go up to Cindy and go, hey, look at this. You know, look at that. See, you've got to love me, it's right there. Okay, that's how you get the police called on you, right? It doesn't work because in that way of thinking, all the tattoo is is a sign or a picture that represents a reality that already exists. Are you with me? So there are some who say you should only baptize someone who has already confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord because baptism is a sign of that reality that has been given evidence for. Does that make sense? Generally, a two-year-old doesn't walk up and go, I understand that I'm a sinner and Jesus Christ died for my sins. Therefore, you get it. Now, there is another camp of believers who believe the same Bible, um, who are just as devoted to it, who say, we agree with you, we think baptism is a symbol, that it does show this reality, but we think it does something more. We think baptism actually does something for you. That somehow the Holy Spirit swims in the streams of this and somehow affects faith in you. Some will say the Holy Spirit plants a seed of faith. Some will say the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm not really concerned with the the delineations. And so the question then comes up, do you want the Holy Spirit to be in someone? Well, yeah, including your three-month-old. Well, yeah. And do you want your three-month-old to have faith? Well, yeah. Then bring them to something where God in their mind has promised to swim and let God start working in their life that way. The question comes down to what do you believe baptism is, and for a variety of reasons, I side over here, despite the fact I completely understand and get where the believers are coming from over here. If you have follow-ups on the details, text them in. Next question. Why not communion every Sunday? Honestly? just starts to feel stale and boring. That's not maybe a good answer, but that's the reality. All right? It just takes a lot of time. Um, And uh, not opposed to it, but that's why. Can I challenge you? Why not communion every day? Why once a week? Do you commune every day in your home? Many people do. Something to think about. Why continue to ask God over and over when he says, ask and you'll receive. Uh, Shows lack of faith, God can't answer? No, I don't think so. And here's the reason why, because God has said more than ask and you'll receive. There's this one great parable in the Bible where, where, where Jesus calls God an unjust judge. 
And he says the unjust judge doesn't care about people. But the only reason he finally gives in and does the right thing is because people will not leave him alone. Not my words, it's Jesus' words. And Jesus says, pray that way. Tenaciously, unceasingly, wear him down. Why does it work that way sometimes? I don't know. But it's what God invites you to do. It's kind of like this. Parents, could you wrap your mind around it? Sometimes you give your kids because they ask you one time, right? Sometimes you give in to your kids because you want them to shut up. All right? You've got to understand God relationally as a father. Otherwise, questions like this don't make sense. And if you understand him that way, it's not because he's sadistic. It's not because he's dangling a carrot. It's not because of anything like that. He just seems to like to be asked. Good question. Let me follow up on one more. I do know some people who ask again and again, and it does stem from lack of faith. If I'm speaking to you right now and you ask in an OCD pattern, and I mean this sincerely, where you think you've got to keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it for God to finally hear, the scriptures also say don't babble on like the pagans do. It kind of comes to a place in your own faith life of going, why do I continue to ask? Is it because I love my, my father in heaven and I really want this and I, and I really want him to know and it boils in my soul and it's good for me? Or is it because you're afraid that if you don't, He's not going to take care of you. Oftentimes, the answer to a question depends on where you're coming from. I'll let you guys follow up more if you'd like. Next one. Okay, there's a a few here. It's a follow-up to last week. And, And the question last week was, you know, my brother says he doesn't believe in the Bible. He doesn't like the Bible because um, basically it, it continually degraded, enslaved, and found worthless um, uh, the idea of, of a fellow man and women. And if God is really about love and the Bible is really real, why would God say that? My, my response last week was, I don't think your brother ever actually read the Bible. Um, I think he's parroting things that he's heard and projecting it. The follow-up is, hey, my brother posed to me. He has read the Bible and, in fact, was raised by Christian parents, graduated from a Christian college, and, and led a very Christian life for many years through early adulthood. So brother is establishing his resume. He has experienced some very unfortunate situations in his life and has since fallen away from, um, um, out of a positive... He's basically fallen away from faith. Um, the debate went nowhere. His negatives were plain, but they didn't make my beliefs waver. Um, and then it kind of goes on. I am aware of the, the, the wonderful things in the Bible regarding women, but because of his vast knowledge more than mine, every time I would um, lead him to accept Jesus as Savior and etc., it left me feeling adequate and cut down. You getting the stream of this one here? I think we can go with it as it stands. Does this reveal something to you? That sometimes the way that, that people come to Christ is not because of clear, rational choices, is though, let's just weigh the evidence here and approach it objectively. And if we see the evidence objectively, we're going to make a choice upon it. I find people are not objective. Not a one of us. And while certain things can pose stumbling blocks to people, don't be surprised if that no matter how many arguments you ever give, if someone continues to reject them. You're not saved just by up here. 
because there's other things that get in the way, like stubbornness, pride, past hurt, wounds that are carried that create a certain perception of God. And it's not really about the cognitive answer. You know, if this is what's happening with your loved one, your friend, your brother, whoever it is, can I just encourage you? Just love them. Just love them and continue to pray for them and be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. But don't carry the burden of trying to convince them. Let them know what Christ is like by love in this instance as opposed to debate winning. Make sense? Great one. Next question. When we ask for forgiveness, do we need to be specific about every way we've sinned? No. No, you don't. You know, we we sin far more every day than we realize. And asking God for forgiveness is sometimes just realizing, you know, God, I, I just know there's things I've done to hurt you today. I don't even realize what they are. Um... But I trust that you're true and that this is true about me. Forgive me. Sometimes confessing a specific sin is so therapeutic and cathartic and good. Sometimes you do something specifically to someone, right? And you want them to apologize for that. It heals the relationship, right? But to have to think that you've got to dredge it all up, remember every single bit for God to forgive you, no, it's not what it's about. Because you're not forgiven for asking for forgiveness. You're forgiven because Jesus died for you. Asking for forgiveness heals the breaks in the relationship. Next one. Sorry. Next one. All right. This one is broad. I'm not going to say the specific name on this one, um, but here it is. Why did Grandpa have to die? All right? You know, to whoever texted this, there's not one easy answer. So let me just throw out a few. Some grandparents, like my own kids' grandparents, didn't have to die. But they chose to by taking matters into their own hands. And... uh If I'm speaking to anyone in the room right now and it's something like that, they don't have to all the time, but sometimes people make bad choices, do bad things, do things that God doesn't want them to do. And there's a result of that. But maybe that's not the case for your grandpa here today. Maybe he got sick. Maybe he just got old. Maybe something happened to him that's outside of his control. The Bible says this is what it means to live in a sinful world. See, God didn't make the world where people are supposed to die. He wanted to keep us from that. The reason God makes such a big deal about sin is because sin brings destruction. That's all death is. It's destruction of who we are. It's why God didn't want people to sin. He said, don't do it because this is the result and we chose to. But I want to tell you, God so didn't want your grandpa to die that he chose to die for him. That's how much he didn't want your grandpa to die. 
He says, I don't want you to die so bad that I'll even die. And I don't want to die, but I'll die for you so that your grandpa can live again. That your grandpa can be forgiven. That you can have hope for your grandpa. That's the heart and soul of what Christianity is all about. That's a really good one, whoever asked. Changing gears. If Adam and Eve were both white, how did other races arise? I'm just sensing it came from this side of the room. All right, I don't know. It, 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 uh... Can I ask you, what makes you think Adam and Eve were white? Well, that's how the golden books portray them. I'm not so sure Adam and Eve were white. You know, skin change? Go with me on this one for a minute. We evolve, we change. All right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not up here saying that we're descended from chimpanzees right now. But I'm talking about something called microevolution where different people start to exhibit different traits. I believe we all came from Adam and Eve. Black, white, red, yellow, purple, chartreuse. Variations in genetics. Rays in different areas, you know, of where people pass in the line. But no, that's how it arose over time. It's like why you can breed a brown dog from a black dog, right? Same kind of thing. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, all of one family tree. Even though our hair looks different, our eyes look different, our bodies sometimes look different, and our skin color too. That's a really good one. All right. This is a follow-up to a 9 o'clock. Okay, with the big Powerball jackpot, I had a question. What are God's thoughts on gambling? All right, what's the Powerball jackpot right now? Anyone know? What is it? Anyone win it here? Ah, shoot. All right. So with the big Powerball jackpot, I had a question. What are your thoughts on gambling? There's some believers who think gambling is a sin. I do not think it is. What is gambling? Gambling is nothing more than taking a risk where there is a stake involved. That's life. All right? Now, is there something wrong with greed? Yes. Is there something wrong with addiction? Yes. Is there something wrong with idolizing money? Yes. And all other kinds of things that can surround it. Now, some believers approach these things and go, it's better not to touch them at all. You ever meet a believer who says it's wrong to drink alcohol? I don't think it is. But I understand where they're coming from because it's been so widely abused that sometimes people say it's easier just not to touch it at all. And sometimes I agree with that. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Is gambling a source of greed for you? A source of hope for you? A source of salvation for you? Is it the promise in which you're putting your faith? Is it something that addicts you? Is it something that's destroying your family? Is it something that's getting between you and the people you love? Is it something that obsesses you up here? Then maybe you need to cut it off. But if you can gamble in a God-honoring way, and I believe such is not an oxymoron, rock on. And we've got time for one more question here today. All right. If God loves people in hell, 
How can he stand to watch them burn for eternity? I understand it pains him, but if he truly loved them, would he not do something about it? That's a great one. You know, I believe he did do something about it. I believe he came to this earth kicking and screaming, saying, don't go to hell. You know what hell is? You got to get out of your mind the far side cartoons and the B-rated apocalyptic movies and all this kind of stuff. Hell is nothing more than separation from God. And separation from God means separation from the things that God makes like good and joy and hope and wholeness and life. Separation from that means suffering and despair and death and pain and misery and agony and pride and sin. Hell is people saying, I want nothing to do with God and and the things of his presence. God, God died so people wouldn't go to hell. God begs people not go to hell. God didn't want people to go to hell so much that he said, fine, kill me, slaughter me, I'll separate from God. So you don't have to. But I know what you're saying because you're sitting there going, but what if someone went and why doesn't he just go, just, I'm forcing you out of it. The only way I can answer this is because God doesn't force people. And I want to encourage you to think about hell differently. Most people think of hell as a place where people are victimized. Where people are victimized and crying out, oh, what was me? What did I do? If I could only do it different, I would. I don't think that is the biblical perception of hell. I think if you were to take a tour of hell, what you would see is people in defiance, in spite, in bitterness, in anger. Have you ever met people like this? That they would rather destroy themselves and their relationship than deal with the issue right there because lowering their pride was something that would be worse to them than the suffering they would face. You know what I'm talking about? I think God sees people in hell and goes, I wish you didn't be there. I think people choose to be. I really do, despite the pain. And God is not a God who forces himself in any way. Great questions, guys. And I want to encourage you, um, keep on asking them. I'm going to invite the man to come forward at this point, and I want to invite you to rise. And as we close out today, I just want to invite you to, uh, to come to God in a personal place. Now, let's rise here, all right? And maybe you're here today and, and, and you have a question unanswered and it's keeping you distant from God. I want to invite you to, to just tell him about that and to see if you can trust him here in a moment. Maybe you're sitting here with pain and you're looking for hope and your answers. Tell God about that and trust him, trust him that he'll come to you in that. Maybe you're here today dealing with guilt or sin or fear of the future. Bring it to God today and trust him. It'll forgive you in that. And maybe you're here today at a crossroads trying to decide what to do and what's right. Bring it to God today. And ask him for guidance in that. Let's pray. God, we, we, we just come. And we just thank you for, for the boldness of people and the, just the insightful, deep, at-the-heart questions they've been asking. God, hopefully this just limited time has been able to bring some answers, but if not, I pray that you continue to breathe into them. And as a church, we continue to, to wrestle with these things together. God, I pray you let everyone here know that their question is not off the table with you ever.
that it's okay to keep asking because you are a God who keeps listening, who desires to breathe in, breathe into our times of uncertainty, pain, fear, decision-making. Lord, be with us. Just be with us as your people, we pray. Amen.